Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Brit Tracy Edwards has a hell of a tale to tell. She's probably the last person, except for me, who ever dreamed of captaining the first competitive all-female sailboat crew in the highly prestigious 32,000-mile Whitbread round-the-world race, known since 2001 as the Volvo Ocean Race. It's one of the world's longest and most grueling competitions of its kind. It begins and ends in Southampton, England. Tracy didn't grow up in a nautical family, Her dad died when she was 10, and life as she knew it changed dramatically. Her mom remarried, and her stepdad turned out to be an abusive alcoholic. Tracy dropped out of school, ran away from home at 16. But she wound up finding refuge at island resorts among the hard-partying tribes of boat crew gypsies. She got work as a cook and stewardess. To Tracy, sailing represented freedom and became her sole focus, so much so that she set her sights on the Whitbread World Race, which circumnavigates the globe every three years. In 1985, she managed to get work as a cook on a British boat competing in the fourth Whitbread Race, absorbing everything she could about racing. Why? to skipper her own boat in 1989 in the fifth Whitbread. How she managed to pull it off is the focus of the riveting, inspiring, empowering documentary, Maiden. Okay, that's enough of an intro. Tracy is here, so let's meet and get to know this determined, accomplished, ballsy, don't fuck with me, dynamo, (laughs) Tracy Edwards. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm curious, by any chance... When you came from England, did you sail to the States for this trip? No, no. (laughs) We've literally been flying around the country with the film, and it's just been uh, just amazing. Even all these years later, right? Yeah, because it's it's reminded me of so much that I'd forgotten. Uh, You know, when we first watched this documentary, actually a year ago today. Oh, that's crazy. We first watched this documentary. All right, so the stars are aligned for a reason here. Mm -hmm. It is crazy. And and we'd also uh, managed to get 11 of us together at the same time, which never happens. Oh, wow. We're all all over the world. We're, you know, sort of all over the place. What what was the total number of women who were on the... 12. They were 12. So 11's a pretty good uh, number. It's pretty good. So we all watched the film together and we, we were looking at footage we'd never seen before that Alex had managed to find and and in moments you were just propelled back you oh, know what 20 years ago whatever completely it was 30 years yes, ago 30, I can't do 30. the math 30 years ago I right mean, my goodness so I for one I think we all kind of felt something weird about watching ourselves on screen and I for one was looking at myself thinking that's not me mm. um, because I remember myself as being a bit of an idiot, you know, a uh, bit of a twit and, and kind of bumbling, bumbling and, yeah. one thing mm-hmm. to the next. Mm-hmm. And and I'm looking at this 24-year-old who looks very collected and calm and measured and I'm thinking, I know what was going on beneath the surface, which <laughs> was panic. A stand-in for you, right? <laughs> I felt like it. <laughs> you know... Let's not start with the Whitbread race. As I mentioned in my intro, you had a pretty bucolic, happy life in England up until a point. Can we start there and take us on that trajectory, Tracy? Well, I think, uh, yeah, the first 10 years of my life were perfect. I mean, they couldn't have been any better. Were you an only child? Uh, No, I have a wonderful brother Mm -hmm. and uh, he currently lives in Australia. I don't see him as much as I'd like to. But we had an idyllic childhood, um, a beautiful home, two wonderful parents. Um, we grew up next to my aunt and uncle and cousins. So the four of us were the fantastic four. <laughs> okay. And, you know, we lived a life of adventure and imagination. And I didn't know it then, but a, a life which was 
basically preparing me for what I was to do later because my mother was so extraordinary. My mother was just the most amazing woman and was already instilling in me stuff which I of course, didn't realise then. A strong sense of self. A a strong sense of self. And also a work ethic. Mm -hmm. Mum had a very strong work ethic, as did my dad. Uh, She was a dancer. She Ah. danced all over the world. Um, Well, that's a a hell of a job. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, I often say to my daughter, you know, so we look at old photographs, you know, and there she's in her fishnet tights and <laughs> had, you know, high dancing shoes and it's cabaret sort of type, type stuff. But she got multiple sclerosis when she, uh, just before she had me, actually. So oh, that wow. limited her dancing. But then she was a, um, you know, she she loved driving. She was a carter, go-carter and a rally driver. Wait, so, a race car driver? Yeah. That's how she met my father. He he was her mechanic. <laughs> she went from dancing to being oh, a race. She car. was doing all that stuff at the same time. Then multiple sclerosis kind of limited yeah, put her. Put the kibosh on that. Uh, yeah. So then clearly there's some genes from this woman. And well, her mother her. is amazing as well. You see, my grandmother was. The, so this legacy goes on. There's okay. a lot I had to live up to. I can well, tell you. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I think you know, as I say, looking back. I was being prepared for life mm-hmm. and and uh, I've always had a strong sense of if you want something, you have to work very hard for it. And I, I know that that comes from her. And, you know, so over the years after that, um, which weren't very pleasant for me, you know, so when we moved down to Wales and I came sort of head to head clash with my stepfather. Did your dad die unexpectedly? Yeah, he died of a heart attack in the middle of the night Oy. at the age of 46. Oh, Which wow. at the time I thought, well, that, that you know, at least he had a good innings. Because when I reached 46, I thought, oh, for goodness <laughs> Yeah, sake, I'm just getting started. That is so yeah. young. Yeah, right. And she lost the love of her life. You know, he was her soulmate. Mm. And, but, but she had us, so she started again. And my mum, and I definitely know that I get this from her, my mum has had to start again a few times in her life. And she's, you know, she's stood up, she's dusted herself off and, she, you know, she, she got on with it. Uh, so I think what I, one of the most important things I learned from her was the ability to roll, roll from the punches mm-hmm. you know, and move on to the next thing. And if I need to change things, I'll change them and to to be very flexible. And, and the most important thing I learned from her, two things, she said, we are all good at at least one thing. So it, it, in my horrible teenage years, that was good to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she had her fingers crossed and she was praying. <laughs> but uh, And the other thing she said to me was, keep moving forwards. Never stand still, because nothing's going to come to you. You have to go to it. Mm-hmm. And even if you're walking in the wrong direction, it doesn't matter. Keep moving forwards because, you know, nothing happens standing still. You have to be moving. So and that, that became your mantra? That became my absolute mantra. Even mm-hmm. if I didn't know where I was going, mm-hmm. I was always moving You heard forward. that voice yeah, in your head. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it led me to some amazing places. And they weren't always the right places, but they were interesting and they led me to the next place. Do you think, I don't know if this sounds just so stupid, but in her marrying your stepdad, obviously if that didn't happen, your whole life would have been a complete 180. Right. Well, if if that had happened, yeah. Well, I would have stayed in drama school and I would have been an actress or a dancer. And that's so what you. you that's, that's what, what I you trained to do. to do. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> so sailing's a bit of it left field. <laughs> <laughs> so how long after your dad died did your mom remarry? Two years. Two years. Uh, so I was twelve, and we moved down to Wales. Um, and I, I it was I it was gorgeous where we lived in in a tiny little village on the Gower Peninsula called Clamadoc and uh, it, again you know I had a pony and that was all great but what my mum didn't know because I didn't tell her uh, was that my father my stepfather was um, 
was not very nice to me. And I mean, I did, I did push his buttons. I was always very good at pushing buttons, and okay. I still am. So, of course, at the age of 13, 14, 15, you don't expect to be whacked around for that. So, <laughs> my brother was still in boarding school, so he didn't live with us. So it was quite intense, but. And the really sad thing is it also drove a wedge between my mother and I, and I hated her for years because I couldn't understand her. why she would let this happen. Right. Well, she didn't know it was happening. You know, right. That, right. You know, there's a clue. Did she acknowledge that he might have had a drinking problem or not at all? I think mum was doing her best to survive and... Uh, Looking you know, the other way. And, well, I don't... I don't know. Uh, I, I can't speak for her and she's not with us anymore. But it was a situation I did not help. I didn't help okay. myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I acted out. You know, I, I stole a car. I got caught. Uh, probation for two years. Uh, hanging out with, um, well, I, uh, my great friends in Wales. But uh, we were all a little bit... Uh, uh, rebellious mm -hmm. and uh, a bit naughty and uh, just not going to school. I mean, I was being bullied badly in school, which again, I didn't tell her. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just... So you had cannons to the right of you and cannons to the left yeah, of you, right? Yeah. You know. I didn't deal with it particularly well. So I just became very, very aggressive mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, violent really. And uh, it's part of my life that I look back on and I just don't quite know who I was then. Mm -hmm. But it did get me up off my backside and get me to go out into the world. And, you know, for that, I am grateful, um, even though it wasn't the best way to do it. But you just picked yourself up and, and left yeah. at 16. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But my mother, she was so cool. You know, she knew I needed to go. She knew I needed to find who I was because I wasn't who I was there. there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't believe how brave it was of her to, you know, watch me watch me go off to Greece backpacking and, uh, you know. With nothing? Uh, with Well, with uh, she gave me 50 quid. And what does that mean? Um, 50 pounds. So um, back then it was what? I I have not no a idea. lot. Not, not a lot of money. All right. And so you opted to go to Greece first. Yeah. So I did some backpacking, working my sort of way around uh, until I got to Piraeus, uh, a little marina called Zia Marina, which I just fell in love with. And I started working in a bar there. And... I had really, I was just happy. I really had no idea what I was going to do next until a guy came in one night. And I'd seen him before in his white captain's uniform. And I'd seen these beautiful boats out in the marina. Mm -hmm. It hadn't occurred to me that people actually worked on them. Not that smart at that time. <laughs> um, so he came in, he said, you know, is this really what you want to do, working behind a bar? And I went, not really. And he said, well, I'm, I'm looking for a stewardess. You know, my stewardess has left me in the lurch. Do you fancy it? So I just went... Mm, was he a Brit? Yeah, okay. Yeah, he was actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was 17 and mm -hmm. I just went, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, why not? I'll go mm -hmm. do that. Got on this boat, was immediately seasick for, <laughs> for the first four days, uh -huh. but just thought, wow, this is good. Mm -hmm. I didn't I stepped in it, huh? Oh uh -huh. my God, it's like I'd fallen across my path. Uh, and I almost heard this voice saying, you know, here is your second chance, you know, take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I realised that I was amongst just a bunch of reprobates, really. We were all there for different reasons. We'd all run away from something. And what, what was this a cruise ship? Yeah, no, no, it was a charter yacht. Charter yacht. So, so it was for the wealthy, the rich and yeah, famous. Yeah, all right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so every two week, week or two weeks, you know, we'd have these charterers on, on the boat and we'd sail them around to different Greek islands. And, you know, I was chief cook and uh, bottle washer. Well, I wasn't chief cook, actually. I was just bottle washer. <laughs> um, and I had a great cook and she was very inspirational. My skipper was very inspirational. I've been very lucky through the years. I've had 
great skippers who've all been mentors and mm-hmm. all seen something in me that I never saw in myself. Okay, so that's huge. Let's give yourself some credit too. Uh, you know, if you were well, just a jackass, you know, <laughs> nobody suffers fools gladly. Yeah. Tracy. Yeah. So how I, long did that last? So that really took me up to all the chartering and going mm-hmm. into Indian Ocean, Caribbean, Mediterranean. Oh my I, God. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. She's Columbus here. Yeah, oh my was, gosh. It was amazing. And all these very like minded people who got me. No one had ever really got me before. And mm-hmm. I was like, I, I feel so at home here. And so I learned different parts of the trade. And uh, during my second transatlantic, my skipper said to me, can you navigate? And I went, don't be stupid. I was expelled before long division. <laughs> so <laughs> We would have been friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, what happens if I fall over the side? I said, well, I'll use those um, those electronic thingies. He said, what if the batteries die? I was like, oh, for goodness sake. He said, no. And he gave me the second great piece of advice in my life. He said, why are you a bystander in your own life? He said, why are you watching it? Why aren't you taking part? Oh, wow. I thought, blimey, that's a bit profound for two days out into the <laughs> Atlantic. And he said, no, you need to know these things if you want to live this life. So I thought, yeah, I, I do. And in two days, he taught me to navigate. Wow. And it was the best thing I've ever learned because it is my passion now. It's my love. I I just, I love having a paper chart. Well, we don't use them anymore, but I like paper charts and a sextant and a book of tables and a pencil. And from those, I can find out where I am anywhere in the world. And for me, that is magical. Wow. Understanding and knowing. And then he literally, he said, right, so you can navigate, take us to Portugal. And I went, but you're going to be watching and checking, right? He said, no, 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 we're going to end up where you take us. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. But just as an aside, I just came back from Portugal. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we weren't there at the same time. But yeah. and so you did. Yeah, so I did. And I never remember. I never forget sailing into the harbour and thinking, "I did that. I found. I got us here to this point. This and a, and I felt like a, an explorer and an adventurer. And I thought, wow, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I'm struck by the fact that nobody, as in males patronized you oh in the charter boat business that you're always in the you're always doing the right thing because you're a girl and you're either a stewardess or a cook so um you're never you're never challenging the oh okay the the, the patriarchy if you like of you you, there's a safety this is but that didn't happen with you well i just had great guys who Mm -hmm. saw something who yeah and and who thought i needed to know more about what i was doing to Mm -hmm. keep myself safe Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah, I ended up um, in the Caribbean. I was going out with a guy called Julian Gildersleeve and uh, I was sitting on his boat one day and I saw this book and it was called Cape Horn to Port and I opened it up and I, and I saw Julian. I went, what's this? This is you. He said, oh, that's the second Whitbread Round the World race. I went, what's the Whitbread Round the World race? He said, oh, he said, actually, he said, you, that might be your thing. You might really like this. And so um, he told me all about it and I read the book and I was like, this looks like so much fun. And I'd done a little bit of racing here and there. Um, we used to, when we were at, uh, in port, if there were boat racing boats there, you know, we'd often have friends on them. Mm-hmm. So I was learning, again, that, that side of things. And again, had a, a great captain who, ironically, was then the captain of my boat in the 85-86 race. So, yeah, so I, I thought, well, I'm going to you know, go and get on one of these boats. But it actually what happened before that was I was in Newport, Rhode Island, hmm. um, doing day work there. And I was employed as a stewardess on a charter. And the charter turned out to be King Hussein of Jordan. And uh, I was washing up after lunch and I sort of sensed this presence beside me and I sort of looked around and he was standing there with a tea towel in his hand. And I said, uh, you can't do that. 
He said, I can do anything I like. I'm king. <laughs> so here he is I in went, the galley. Okay. Oh, he was... He was one of the greatest men that ever walked this earth. Um, he was a people person. You know, he he was also a people collector, a collector of interesting people that fascinated him. His love of his fellow human was uh, knew no huh? bounds. And, mm-hmm. and that is why Jordan is this island of stability in, in the Middle East. And, you know, and the Jordanian people oh, are just such wonderful people and they all have the sense you know of 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 him he's like their father so we chatted away and he said so i he said i'm fascinated with this life you live he said you're like a bedouin well, i didn't know what a bedouin was then but that's <laughs> uh-huh. a huge compliment um uh-huh. as he was a bedouin ah ah okay so and a very much of the people and so we we just got on like house on fire he was fascinated with navigation as was i because he's a pilot uh so and what year is this this was 1984, so I was 21. And uh, then I got on the, the my next boat to go over the uh, back to the UK. And so you and he part we ways. Part, we parted ways. He gave me his phone number, and uh, he said, you know, I'm he because I was off to do the 85, 86 race. He said, I'm I'm fascinated with this. He said, see if you can call me on the radio because he was a ham radio operator um, and a fanatic. And so uh, so we did. Uh, I joined the boat in. I joined a boat in. Uh, Portsmouth and did the first leg which I hated with these these guys it was kind of like a charter boat and I was treated a little bit like a servant so I got and is off that the first boat. leg the one that goes to Uruguay uh, in those days it was South Africa and how far is that it's about uh, 6,000 miles and how long did that take uh, that was about five weeks so that was a really was it a torturous five weeks yeah it was I hated it and I, I got off the what boat. have I done? Yeah, I just got off the boat in Cape Town and I just went, right, I'm, that's dreadful. And then, just as luck would have it, yeah, right. a boat called Atlantic Privateer, which was a full-on ocean racing maxi with some real reprobates on board. I mean, they were total pirates and I just <laughs> adored them. And uh, they needed a cook. Their, their cook dropped out and so they went, you know. And then you hook up with him, them in Cape Town? Yeah. So I, I get on this other boat and this is a full on racing boat. And this is where my life changed completely because I just fell in love with ocean racing. I have to say not all the crew wanted a girl on the boat. You know, they didn't want to be the only boat with a girl on. So, <laughs> were you the only female? Uh, that, in the whole race, there were three of us. And, and on that boat, clearly you were the only I was the broad. Only, uh, yeah. Okay. And the first woman to race on an ocean racing maxi in, in the Whitbread. But I didn't know that then. I was just doing what I was doing. Yeah. yeah. And what I did was I learned. From them, I, I I learned more in that next few months than I'd ever learned in my life. And the next leg was to New Zealand, and we actually won that leg. So I went from being we don't want a woman on board to oh, actually it's quite lucky to have you on board. You're our lucky charm. I mean, having 17 older brothers though was a bit of a you know <laughs> dating was a nightmare. You know? uh, who are you seeing? Where are you going? Well, yeah, you had a, a you yeah, had had, a, had to have a notebook, you know, <laughs> with names. And, oh, that's hilarious. Um, so. But was, were you ever taken advantage of? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. That's not what Because they didn't mess is. around with you, right? It's just not what ocean racing is. Okay. Um, you know, you're at sea for five weeks. You don't wash. None of you wash for five weeks. Yeah. It's not pleasant. Okay. Um, okay. You know, you have... Uh, you have. Uh, I hate to do the stereotyping thing, but I mean, you're, no, no, you're no, the no, only... No, okay. no, 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 no. Never... No one would have even thought about it. And you were completely safe. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And um, so you get to a New Zealand. Right? We get to New Zealand in first place. So then the next leg was back into the Southern Ocean, and that was around Cape Horn. My first, uh, my first trip around Cape Horn, 
And uh, actually, when we went round Cape Horn, we followed a guy around called Bertie Reed, and he was doing a solo round the world race. And he was on a boat called Prestige, which will feature later because she later became maiden. Uh, uh-huh. And uh-huh. We were, he, we, he was South African. All the crew on, on this boat was South African. So they're all talking on the radio. And little did I know I was going to be going around the world four years later in her. Uh, so amazing. Yeah, you're giving me goosebumps. Uh, <laughs> you really are. So we finished the race in May 1986. Okay. And on the last leg, I was thinking a lot about this. Where are all the women? You know, if I can do this race, it's not that hard. You know, so what's going on here? This is like the world's best kept secret. And I thought... I really want to navigate on a round-the-world race boat, but no male crew will ever have me. As the boss. Yeah. My mum used to say, if you don't like the way the world looks, change it. Don't moan. Don't whine. Change Mm it. Mm -hmm. I thought, how do I change it? How do I change it? Well, I put my own project together. And I'll have an all-female crew so that we can prove that women can do it, and that'll get more women into the race. And I remember going through this thought processes, and the first person I told was one of the guys on the boat, Paul Stanbridge. And he actually said... He said, I don't think women can do it. He said, but if anyone could, I I think it would be you. Mm -hmm. So why don't you give it a go? So I got off the boat, spoke to my mum, and she was... So you two had reconciled by that point? Yes. Mm -hmm. So she'd actually travelled around the world with us. Um, She'd she'd flown from port to port. No kidding. uh, Yeah, because I was going out with one of the guys from Drum. Um, She stayed with the Drum House, and she became mum to the entire fleet. And we had such a great time. We spent a lot of time talking and we completely reconnected. Now, where was your stepfather? Uh, dead. Okay. No great loss. No great loss mm-hmm. to anyone, really. Uh, so that was an amazing thing as well. Uh, so when I finished the race, I said, Mum, what do you think about me putting together an all-female crew? And she was, she was very good, actually, because she said, you've never stuck at anything before. Mm, mm. She said, to have a dream and to change your mind is fine. She said, but if you bring other people into your dream, you're responsible for all of their dreams. Mm. I thought, God, that's such that's huge. true. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I gave it some more thought. I went to Australia to do the uh, look at the America's Cup. I came home and I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. Met Howard, who was going to be my project manager, and spoke to Admiral Charles Williams, who I'd got to know during the 85-86 race. He was uh, the race organiser. And he was terribly, terribly Admiral Charles Williams. <laughs> yes. And he said, I think that's a fantastic idea. Absolutely brilliant. Now, later on, he was petitioned by other people to not let us enter the race, to make up some rule that women couldn't do the race. Because why? I have no idea. I Just I because. don't get it yeah yeah and he just said i don't talk such rubbish twaddle of course women can do it <laughs> uh, so he was oh, he was my hero and uh i then announced at the 1986 southampton boat show in september i announced the first all-female crew to do the whitbread around the world race of course to much derision laughter and but you made that announcement with no backing no no crew no, no boat just words came out of your yeah. mouth. Yeah. And but that is often how projects are announced. So we're going to do this okay. and then you announce it and then you hope that the publicity will bring in interest from funders and, you know, sort of and and crew. Right. Which it did with the crew bit. You know, I was living in Hamble at the time and random women used to turn up on my doorstep and go, is this the maiden house? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can I help? Yes. <laughs> so we, we kind of came together in this sort of ragtag, Group of group people. strangers, yeah. right? Yeah, we had a crew house, so any any women who came along who wanted to help could live in the crew house. I couldn't pay anyone; I had no money. I was just going to say, where'd the money come from? 
we raised bits and pieces from boat shows. We had donations. Uh, we sold boxers, uh, boxer shorts, balloons and badges at boat shows. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and we had a few small sponsors to start off with, uh, but we were looking for our one big sponsor because having lots of small sponsors can get quite complicated. So this group of 12, one of the ties that bind, I'm guessing, is adventure, excitement, and maybe... They don't know where they are in the world? That's actually not the case. They were looking for something. They okay. were looking for a boat to race around the world on. Oh, everyone was very clear on what they wanted to do. All right, okay. And there's no way, you know, very rare for a woman to get on a male boat. Exactly. When they heard about Maiden, they were like, I need to be there. Now, I thought it was going to be, it was called initially Maiden Great Britain because there was a big government thing going on at the time about Made in Great Britain. Oh, so Maiden Great Britain. Play on words. Yeah, mm-hmm. really bad one. Uh <laughs> And I was going to have a British crew, but also I wasn't going to skipper the boat. I wanted to be the navigator. So I was going to find a skipper and, you know, put the project together. What's the difference? So the skipper is uh, someone who has overall control and whose word is law at sea, literally. And the navigator is the person that spends their time in the nav station uh, deciding where you're going to go. But the skipper has final say. I started out with that thought, but then I, I couldn't find enough British women who done enough sailing or racing at that time. Or qualified. So we started taking women from all over the world. You know, we had nine nationalities out of 12 of us. So wow. it was pretty amazing. Wow. And uh, and then I realized that I brought someone on board who I thought was going to be skipper. We clashed heads and uh, we, she was so amazing and none of this was her fault. This was my fault because I was so young. I didn't know how to deal with confrontation. Mm. So I, mm. so I, I went like this and pretended it wasn't happening, you know, covered my eyes and my ears. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. You have you have to treat people with the respect of telling them what the problem is. Right. And I, I didn't do that. And in the end, we clashed so badly that I sacked her and then ended up being the skipper. Wow. But that was not the plan. Yep. To be a skipper and a navigator at the same time is actually incredibly Crazy. difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because on most race boats, the skipper will blame the navigator and the navigator <laughs> will blame the skipper. You had nowhere to go. So I, I just was <laughs> arguing with myself. <laughs> But what it did do was it taught me actually by chance about how women perform better in rounded hierarchies. We do not perform well with linear hierarchies. And Ooh, so I had created this male without realizing it. I just copied the men. And then I thought, OK, so we don't have a, uh, we don't have a first mate anymore. This is actually working. This looks nice. It's the triangle. It's me and these two watch captains and my watch captains were so amazing. And so we worked better. It kind of fell into place. And so by chance, I discovered that women are more flexible, are more also. flexible mm-hmm. also, great communicators, but we don't work the same as men. Mm. That was an interesting lesson. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we ended relief. up, I know, we <laughs> ended up with this just amazing crew who, I mean, put up with a lot from me. I, I'm, I'm not the easiest person to live with. And as driven people are often not. Mm-hmm. And we learned together and it really, we couldn't find the money. We, oh, we couldn't find the money. And, you know, no one. That was your biggest obstacle? That was a huge obstacle. And, but we had so much help. We had so many people helping us to keep going. And in the end, I, I literally woke up at two o'clock one morning. I woke up and I thought, we need a boat. If it's a secondhand boat, that doesn't matter. But we need a boat. You people mean at that point you didn't see. have a vehicle? No, we had nothing. We were still raising the money. We were training on other people's boats. Okay. People were very kind. And I just thought we've got to have a boat. People have got to see something physical for them to believe that we're going to do this. 
So I did an interview with a guy called Andrew Priest, who's now a really good friend of mine for Yachts and Yachting. And I said, well, we're going to buy a boat, second-hand boat and everything else. And the headline of his ty- of his uh, article was, Tracy Edwards tells, tells us she's going to buy a boat. We'll believe it when we see it parked on her front lawn. <laughs> so I was like, okay, right, we just have to get on and do this then. So I remortgaged my house. I have ha- I have a, an ama- had an amazing bank manager. You, you couldn't do any of these things now. And uh, he let me remortgage my house. I... Found the second-hand boat in South Africa, sitting on the on the dock. What was it? An ad in the paper? No, friend of mine called me up and said, "I think I may have found you the perfect boat. Prestige is sitting just rotting away on on the dock in South Africa." And I went, "Oh, that's the boat we followed around Cape Horn. There was something there. All right, the stars were aligned. I had to go and yeah. see her. Yeah, and I remember how I was saying, "Don't make any offers, you know, because we've only got a limited amount of money and we've got to do a refit." So anyway, so I went and saw her immediately paid what they were asking which is so stupid um, was it an exorbitant amount of no it wasn't it was 110,000 okay. pounds which is um, you know was nothing for a boat then the guys were spending millions on, on their boats and then I found a, a captain of a cargo ship and I said could you put my yacht on the top of your ship and take her to Southampton and he went yeah okay <laughs> didn't have enough money for shipping so we got her back and all of us, all of the crew at that time were standing on the dock and she, they lifted her off the boat. As they'd gone past the um, uh, west coast of Africa, the Sahara Desert had blown red sand all over her as if she didn't look bad enough already. <laughs> and they put her on the dock and everyone just went, I hope there's another, I hope there's another yacht on that ship that's not that. And I went, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah, I said, should be beautiful. Should we, we can, you know, it'd be fine. So then we, then we remortgaged the boat to pay for the refit. I mean, my, my bank manager was having a nervous breakdown at that point <laughs> to get it to the value that, uh, you know, of the the amount of money that we'd borrowed, and uh, and we did, and we did it all ourselves because we couldn't pay anyone to do it. We did have a guy called Duncan Walker who became our refit manager, who was a legend. Uh, he was an amazing shipwright. He was a great teacher. And he let us do the work ourselves. You know, he never took anything out of our hands and said, oh, give it to me, I'll do it. You know, it's like, no, this is how you do this and that, that's not quite right or whatever. So we literally, we took sledgehammers and we ripped the interior of the boat out, which was all heavy wooden cabins. And we turned her into a full-on modern racing yacht. Wow. We changed the deck layout slightly because women have different points of strength. And uh, because of our weight differences, we use different muscles. And so we... Changed the, the deck layout and we completely open plan down below with just bunks, a nav station and a galley. Oh, and a tiny head, uh, which is a toilet. Yeah. And um, we put her back in the water and she looked amazing. Uh, we did a race actually before uh, the Whitbread, um, which isn't in the documentary but because it, it doesn't quite flow. But we did very well. And we thought, right, that's it. We've got a boat. We've got a crew waiting for the... Huge amounts of sponsorship to come in. Nothing. Mm. I mean, nothing. And that's when, in desperation, I called King Hussein. And said, <laughs> yes, I, I have his number. I, I can't. You know, we'd, we'd stayed in touch over the years. He'd always been supportive. I was on the phone to him quite a lot, you know, when I had doubts or worries. And he was always so, so supportive. And so he said, right, this is ridiculous. He said, Royal Jordanian Airlines is going to sponsor you. And so he flew Howard and I over to Jordan. We met with Ali Gandor, who was the chief executive of Royal Jordanian Airlines. And he just said, we love this. We love this. And now we want to paint the boat like our, our planes, which is grey and white and red and gold. It was 
just so beautiful. We were so distinctive. And, um, and the boat's name was Royal, the Royal Jordanian. Well, no, it, it stayed maiden. Oh, so okay. kind of them to let us do that. We uh, removed Great Britain, obviously. Okay. So we became maiden, sponsored by Royal Jordanian. Uh, right, that's, because I want to just digress for a second, because I n- saw the film, and I just can't tell you how much it impacted me. But how did that come to pass in terms of the filming? The director's Alex Holmes yeah. of, of Maiden. When all of this was going on, were you approached by him? No, no, no. We uh, we wouldn't have filmed if the race committee hadn't asked for volunteers to take cameras on the boats. So it was just chance. Holy cow. I know. And most of the boys were like, we don't really want to take cameras. You know, we're serious ocean racers. And we went, we'll, we'll take cameras. We will, we will. And then Joe... Wonderful Joe, uh, who was the cook. She said, "Well, I'm not doing a watch, so I'll film." So we packed her off to the BBC for a couple of days to, to learn to how to training. do this. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. This footage was like sort of a happenstance too. Yeah. Oh man. I know. Oh, I just. Uh, but then what was also amazing, and Alex uh, tells us much better than me, but uh, he, when he came to find this footage, and it, it was all over the world and it was spread everywhere it was in bits and pieces and not catalogued and it two years he spent looking for the uh, footage um he said joe has this emotional intelligence and when she films it's like she doesn't film all the boys boats for filming interviews uh yeah uh, it, it, we're doing 22 knots and it's the wind is the and you know there's three thousand miles to go we did a few interviews but very few Joe just captured life. Yes, that's what I was so struck by. That's yeah. right. Oh, I, wow. I think it also as well. We told her to bugger off so many times. We just put a camera <laughs> in, in my face. way. Get the yeah, hell out of here. Get out of my way. Yeah, that she would hide, and so you all a lot of the footage we didn't know was being filmed, and that's that wonderful. The intimacy. There's a vulnerability, I think. Yes, and you feel it in in watching that film. I was so struck by that. Absolutely. So King Hussein, your new BFF, um, pays for your, sponsors your boat. And at this point, uh, you're good to go. Yeah, well, it was just before. Well, so he came in about nine months before the start, which was fantastic. It was the first time I could really pay people properly. We then did the fast net a month before the start, and that's when um, I had my clash with my first mate, and uh, I sacked her. We're now really good friends, and she's actually in New York with us. Oh, that's she, funny. She's always been part of our team, really. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she said to me, when we made it up after the race, you know, she said, you know, best thing that ever happened, because I did the next whip bread, and she said, but I'd sail around the world with you, I'd have killed you. And I went, yeah, I kind of thought that. <laughs> so... Um, that was amazing. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so then we then got to the start line. We were a little bit, it wasn't how we expected it to be. We didn't have Mary Claude. A couple of the girls were very worried about that. And they, they said to me, we think we might need her. And I said, well, we haven't got her, so we've got to make do. Jo wasn't on the boat because she'd broken her wrist. So we had another cook. It was all a bit, oh, okay. Yeah. But we'd got there. And the hardest part of doing the Whitbread was getting to the start line. When we crossed the start line, we were like, oh, we know how to do this bit. Oh, <laughs> so the means yeah. to the end were just uh, just onerous. Yeah. Wow. But I, I think that oh, the, the journalists still didn't think we could do it because they were taking bets on how far we'd get in yeah. the race, which I didn't yeah. know about till the end, which is lucky for their life expectancy. <laughs> uh, Don't miss. Yeah, Howard told me afterwards. But... A lot of the guys in the race, not in our class, the guys in our class really didn't want us there, but the guys on the bigger boats, you know, they were like, yeah, go for it, girls. You know, give it a go because we weren't racing in their class and we couldn't beat them. Uh-huh. So they were, yeah, right. they, they were, they were quite safe. You were yeah, safe. magnanimous yeah. about the whole thing. Right. 
and off we went. And the first leg was uh, just a, a, a extension of our training, if you like, really. But I would have to say that we had such a great advantage because we were battle hardened by that point. You know, there were boats in the race that had literally just taken on the crew the day before they left. Oh my and we'd God. been together for nearly two years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys said when we got to Uruguay, he said, oh, you girlies not talking to each other already. I went, what do you mean? He said, well, there was no shouting on your boat at the start line. <laughs> Girls don't like to be shouted at. We don't shout at each other. You know, we just quietly got on with everything. And But when we came into Uruguay, the first stop, we were in third place, which we were gutted about. Gutted means excited. No. You were upset about it? Yeah, we wanted to win. And everyone else was just happy we were alive. I would think so. Yeah, we made it. I mean, that's what struck me in watching the film. Yes, the first leg of this race is from Southampton to Uruguay. That's nuts. Yeah. How many miles is that? Uh, it's about, uh, again, about 6,000 And that miles. took you, again, five weeks? Yeah, four or five weeks. And also, I was curious, when you get to port, how long do you all hang out before the next leg begins? Three to four weeks. So you you, you, you repair get, the boats, you repair right. the crew. you Because um, when, when you start racing on a, on a round-the-world race, your body starts to deteriorate as soon as you cross the start line. Um wow. You know, you've bulked up before you start, but you, you, the weight just drops off you. And uh, cold and pain are the best ways to lose weight. Weight Watchers do really well in the Southern Ocean. Oh, um, I'll keep that in mind. So, yeah. And it's constant um, movement, constant stress, constant focus. Right. Uh, yeah, you were working 24-7. Yeah. So leaving Uruguay three weeks later, we were so determined we were going to yeah. win this next leg. Yeah. Third. Not good enough. That's not why we entered the race to come wow. third. Wow. No. So I decided to go very far south on this leg, which was a big risk. Uh, none of the other boats went as far south as us. So I reduced our distance. Um, but then you have the added, there's there's no pros without cons. And the cons are icebergs, the Antarctic shelf, and getting on the wrong side of low pressures, which you do not want to do. So it's a juggling act. You're sort of... Where were you going? Where were you headed to? What was second So we stop? were sailing through the Southern Ocean, 7,800 miles. It's the longest leg the Whitbread has ever had because we couldn't go to South Africa because of the sanctions at that point against okay. apartheid. Okay. So we sailed from Uruguay to Australia, which is a mega leg. And that was seven weeks at sea. But, you know, it was everything we trained for. And we were so ready. We were so ready. And we quite qu we lost quite a lot of ground to start off with, getting as far south as we did. But then when we started to make it up, we were like, "This is looking interesting." Uh -huh. And uh -huh. uh, unfortunately, something very tragic happened on that leg. Um, two guys were swept overboard from Crichton's naturally, and one of them died, uh -huh. uh, which was just awful. There are moments like that when you're racing, which really bring you back down to earth. Very sobering, yeah. Yeah, and your mortality suddenly. Riz, looms up you know, in front yeah. of you. So that was, that was awful to deal with. And, and we were friends with all the pe people on that boat and it just must have been so dreadful for them. Um, but then coming up out of the Southern Ocean into Australia, um, there's always a... People are a little bit sketchy with the information on the last few days because you don't want to give away your position. So we're all a little mm. bit naughty. Mm -hmm. You're not, mm -hmm. Race rules absolutely bans that. But, you know... So coming up out of the Southern Ocean, we thought we were in first place. But we weren't 100% sure... 
until we crossed the finishing line and everyone was shouting at you, you're, uh, you're first, yeah. you're first. Yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, I remember that scene. It was amazing. Yes, yes. I think their tears were streaming down <laughs> my eyes. Yeah. What do I know about sailboats and racing? You get nauseous from it and that's about it. Yeah. And you came in first place yeah. for the, the longest Longest, stretch. hardest leg. Yeah. So that was just incredible. And of course, all our supporters were like, yeah, we knew they could do it. Mm. The collective jaws of the entire sailing world just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, we'd really rocked the boat. and Literally. Uh, yeah. A lot of people didn't like it, which was fine by me. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. At that point, you shouldn't give a damn. So the next, so a lot of people said it's luck, luck of the you know, whatever. Yeah. So we thought we've got to win the next leg, which is a short tactical leg, which we, which will show that women can do long, hard legs and short tactical legs. Now I'm not a tactician, but my two watch captains were amazing tacticians, and and Mickey as well. She was extraordinary, and so we set off on the third leg, and we won that one as well. Only by an hour this time, but by the halfway point, we were 16 hours ahead of our nearest rival. Yeah, I remember and feeling that high too yeah. for you. That's when we started turning the corner. And, and that's when, so Bob Fisher had written about us before we left. They're just a tin full of tarts. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which we hadn't really paid that much notice or uh, whatever. Right. When we got into New Zealand, God bless him, he wrote, they're not just a tin full of tarts. They're a tin full of smart, fast tarts. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't notice that the word tarts is still, you know. Yeah, uh, hello. He could, he could just go so sentence. far. Yeah, yeah couldn't little, steal home. Little steps, baby steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Um, he was wonderful. He completely changed his mind by the end of the race. And we, we are lifelong friends. And uh, he's, uh, he, yeah, amazing. A lot of the other journalists wouldn't. They just stuck with it. Nope, nope. That's all just luck. And, uh, you know. They didn't give an inch. Yeah. The next part of the race didn't go so well for us. We had, um, I made a couple of really stupid decisions navigating coming up to Cape Horn. We then nearly sank going around Cape Horn um, <laughs> as we were going past the Falkland Islands, uh, which was two of the scariest days of my life, I think. There was no other time in the race I was worried or scared those two days where we did we did sort of look at the life rafts and uh, think, okay, right, um, well, let's not hope we don't have to go there, but... It was nerve-wracking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, finding the leak. We'd never, we didn't find the leak till we got to Uruguay. Um, and then back into Uruguay um, and then on to Fort Lauderdale, uh, where we decided to do something a little bit different. Um, we, I have to preface this with the fact that we would never have done this if we hadn't won two legs. We felt we'd earned the right to look like we wanted to look. And we always sailed into port. We didn't want to be male clones, you know. A lot of times I think women almost have to become quite male to succeed, mm. and I, I find that so sad. Mm. We were girly girls. And so we came, when we came in, we were washed, shaved our legs. You know, we had pink shorts and gray yes, t-shirts. Yes, I remember that. Braided yes. hair. Yes, yes, yes. Because we're girls. Yeah. We, we looked like we just sailed in from around the corner. <laughs> the guys used to get in and go, ah, smelly, we're yeah. here, you know. <laughs> um, so that was very important to us. And then coming into Fort Lauderdale, we hadn't done very well on that leg. So we thought, let's, uh, you know, let's use this uh, publicity that we're getting and turn it on its head. So we wore these amazing swimsuits, which had been specially designed for us. And again, collective jaws dropped, but not for the same reason as before. And it was just, I have gone backwards and forwards about this over the years, you know, and I did say to um, one of my daughter's friends, who's also 19, I said, you know, as a feminist now, do you think we screwed up by doing that? She went, absolutely not. 
She said you'd worked for the right to wear what you want. Whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Exactly She said you were right. always saying. I, I, that was the same takeaway I had. Yeah. That you were so not selling out. No, it was powerful. We were, it was doing, we were doing it on our terms. Yeah. We looked great. Oh, yeah. to look like that now. And know what I know now. <laughs> that would be good. Um, so, yeah, that had a massive impression. I think it was the most sports, uh, most syndicated sports photograph that year. That was amazing. From beginning to end, how long were you at sea? Nine months. Nine months. And then... Is there this, incre- forgive the cliche, but was there this incredible letdown yeah. when you sailed into Southampton? Yeah, whatever, whatever, press notwithstanding, whatever, it was like, now what the hell happens? Well, we had this huge high at the end because we had all these hundreds of boats come out to meet us. Thousands, 50,000 people are standing on the in Ocean Village to welcome us in. We were heroines. Right. And then everyone leaves quite quickly because they have jobs to go to sure. either other boats or racing and you know some of the girls went off to do the next their next uh whipbread um which was fantastic so i kind of stayed and held the fort and the come down was just too much and I, bet. Uh, I had a nervous breakdown um which i probably wouldn't have told you about a couple of years ago but i don't know if it's the same here but in the uk we're all talking about mental health now a, a lot and taking care of yourself and your well-being because we didn't know about that in those days so I didn't ask for help because I thought that was being weak mm. and I tried to deal with everything on my own and you know I didn't reach out to any of the girls I just thought well, no they're busy and I've got to deal with this and I, I didn't very well and Joe came, drove up from Wales got me literally put me in the car and went right you need to leave this all behind so I became a recluse for two years and um no one knew where people I just dropped out of the sailing world people were like where you know and that might be a reason why the the whole PR thing didn't continue it kind of just stopped and yeah. I wanted it to stop mm-hmm. um, but then two years later I was I was back and doing another all-female crew but the thing is also you wrote books about it you got an NBE which is member of the British Empire I mean you were feted you were praised you were deified yeah I'm so struck. The ups and the downs are extraordinary. <laughs> the highs and the lows yeah. are, yes, jaw-dropping. Yeah. Yeah. That maybe, I don't know if you crave for something a little consistent or not, even in today's world. I think I'm the kind of person that needs that, that uh, the the ride, you know, the, the, the roller coaster. Uh, that, that's the word yeah. I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Not when I'm on the on my knees. That that's uh, always the point where I think, oh God, why can't I just live a l- normal life and stop this ridiculousness? But I can't. This is who I am. And but haven't you? You've married. You had children. Where is Tracy Edwards today, or in the last bunch of years? Well, divorced. Um, single mother. Uh, okay. To the most gorgeous and wonderful nineteen-year-old daughter you could ever imagine. Not surprised. Um, who is so much better behaved than I was. Thank. Goodness. Okay, so that legacy you didn't leave it. Yeah, Who cares? Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, she takes after my mum. Yeah. Know, uh-huh. And I take after my grandmother. So I'm incredibly happy uh, with my life. We've um, just rescued Maiden and she's now sailing around the world oh, again. Isn't that fabulous. With another all female crew. Yeah. These girls are so great. I mean, they've all been inspired by Maiden. Every woman on the boat has been inspired by Maiden, and now they're helping what? to take her around the world. Yes, and I, I used the term before, I'll use it again. This is your legacy, Tracy. This is what you've given birth to. You, I have goosebumps <laughs> from you. All that you've been through, and that hopefully you've been able to absorb, and I think you have. But what's, I think, amazing at the moment is we've got these two parallel things going on. And again, you know, I would love to say I planned all this, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, two weeks before I met, met Alex Holmes, who the said director. to me, you know, yeah. I'd love to make a documentary. 
with I found, footage that I, yeah I found Maiden so Maiden burst back into my life it's like hello you've forgotten about me and <laughs> uh, you know I need help so I rescued her again and brought her back to the UK and the person who paid for all of this is King Hussein's daughter Princess Hunt. oh that's crazy uh, that's just crazy <laughs> you know I have to just tell you that I got the screener for Maiden and I was riveted. And that film ended and the tears were streaming down my face. Your film, damn it, just stayed with me for days. And that movie just was huge. Halle is huge. He's done it. Just an extraordinary job. I mean, just finding the footage took him two years. Um, he's got an amazing team, Victoria Gregory, his producer, and Katie Breyer, this extraordinary editor. And I, I don't know anything about this. I just know I love the film. But Alex has taught me, you know, sort of said so the editing is absolutely key. And she was uh, just amazing. Joe's footage was very important. Yeah, he said this no wouldn't kidding. be the documentary the intimacy without this of that. footage. Wow, yeah. And then the interviews with us, with us older... Uh, because they decided they didn't want a narration. They wanted us to tell the story. Mm. And uh, most of us said, I don't know if we remember that much, Alex, you know. <laughs> two days he had me for two days, pouring out my heart and my soul. I felt empty by the time I'd finished this process. And we all said the same. And, you know, Sally went, I, should, I don't think I remember anything at all, you know. And then eight hours later, she was like, oh, yeah, uh, it was all in there. And Alex has this ability Washed over to you, no pun intended. pull it out of you. Yeah, yeah. And I think I just, I'm so thankful to him. I just think he's done such an amazing job. Well, his subject is amazing. So we're running out of time, but I just want to ask, so life is very good for you now. You're just kind of relaxing. I'm, I'm running, ma no, I'm not relaxing. <laughs> I'm running Maiden. You're so running Maiden. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of the, the project manager. Right. It's another amazing team. Uh, great shore crew, great uh, crew. And I love what we're doing. So Maiden Sailing Around the World, raising funds and awareness for girls' education. Oh, God. Because that's my passion. I threw away something so precious. Yes, when you were growing up. Right? I didn't know. Yeah. I was 15. I knew it all, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There are 130 million girls around the world, and that is a low estimate, who do not have an education, are not allowed to have an education. So if we don't put this right, if we don't get equality right there, it's not going to happen in adult life. And if we don't have equality, this planet is screwed. No uh, you yeah. know, the only way we will solve all of our problems is to be have equality. And I think, okay, the girls' education is, is horrifying and we're, we're helping and working with other charities to hopefully change that. But I do feel very optimistic. This year in particular, I feel... Women are collaborating and, you know, we're not, we have worked not together in the past, That's I true. think, you That's know, true. and mm -hmm. Maiden now feels part of, well, we're connected to the Women's March, the Me Too campaign, Time's Up, He for She, um, you know, we feel part of a conversation. But I think what's different between 30 years ago and now is that men are finally part of this conversation mm. and some of them are leading the narrative and that's extraordinary. And... You know, when we go into schools, all the girls go and talk to schools. We have school girls down to the boat. It's such a joyous project. And, uh, oh, she'll be on the West Coast of America in August and she'll be in New York in July next year. Yes. So um, oh, you can God. come and see her. Oh, you're damn straight. I yeah. will. Oh, my gosh. What a thrill to meet you. Honestly, you so I know I'm gushing, but it's all real. Your story just resonates. And I just feel so blessed to have met and gotten to know you, Tracy. Thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate it. It was just wonderful. Is there... 
a way that people can make donations? Oh, yes. You can go to the maidenfactor.org and uh, you can see what we're doing. Look at the project. And it's use, and it is the maiden. The maiden, maiden factor. The maidenfactor.org. Yeah. Okay, then that's perfect. Thank you so much for being who you are Thank and being you. here today. It was just the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Sandy Klein.